Hello, I'm Greg Warzel. I hear the train a coming, it's rolling round the bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. Well, I'm stuck in false prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps rolling on down to San Antonio. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear the whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. Yeah, buddy, welcome to church. That song was recorded in Folsom Prison in 1968. It's a song about being stuck in prison, and you hear a train riding by, and you wish you could just get on that train. And when he sings those words, I shot a man in Reno, and just to watch him die, I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. There's actually... There's something very moving about Johnny, the man in black, singing all these heartbreaking songs about loss and heartache and the need for freedom to prisoners stuck in a prison. His back and forth with them on the, on the album, if you've heard it before, is, is really pretty sweet. But what's so sad as you listen to this album is that some of these guys actually get pulled out of the concert. 
you know, the warden might come over the announcement speaker, and in between some songs, you can actually hear prisoners getting called out. Think about it. You're in prison, and the only thing that's gone good for you in a whole long time is that Johnny Cash is there to play a concert for you. And then they call your number. I mean, that's cold-hearted. Like, it just seems so cruel. You can hear it on the recording. There's an inmate, number 88419, a man named Sandoval. He gets called out of the concert because he's wanted in reception. Like, oh, I don't want to go to reception. To the prisoners at Folsom, this was not about an album getting recorded. I mean, the album did get recorded. Uh, this was their lives. He was singing about their lives. Like, this was real for them. The content of the songs, this was real for them. This was like everything. And Johnny was singing to them. Johnny was singing for them. We just get to listen in. That album was all about them. We just get to hear it. And I think Jesus did the same thing. He had that same spirit about them. He, he often designed his message for the outlaw or for the outcast person, for the person that felt like a rebel, for the person that regular culture just, they kind of rejected. Jesus designed his message for them. And guess what? The religious people, they never liked it when he did that. The religious people didn't want anything to do with them. And to pick more up on that, I want to go to Luke chapter 4. This is our reading for today. Luke chapter 4, it begins by saying this. Jesus went to Nazareth. This was his hometown when he was a kid. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. That's God's word for us today. Today we're going to talk about Jesus' hometown and we're going to talk about Jesus' adopted hometown. Most of you know that he is born in Bethlehem, but he can't stay there very long. Because Herod is after this new Messiah that was to be born. And he goes after the children in that village of Bethlehem. And so Joseph and Mary, they take their baby and they escape to Egypt. So Bethlehem is where he's born. Egypt is where he spends his toddler years. But it's Nazareth where they settle. 
and this becomes his childhood hometown. And then later on in his ministry, when he's an adult, Jesus adopts the town of Capernaum as his new hometown. But more on that one in a second. First, let's go to Nazareth. Numerous scholars agree that what Jesus read on that day was not the appointed reading. Yes, it was supposed to be from the scroll of Isaiah, uh, but he flipped through the pages till he found what he wanted. But it wasn't actually flipped through the pages. He just unrolled the scroll a lot more, and he got to the part he wanted to read. And he, particked, he picked a particular passage about the Messiah coming, which makes sense. Because Isaiah has a lot of messianic passages, and Jesus was beginning to reveal himself to the world who he really was. But he wanted this particular messianic passage because it talked about the year of Jubilee. You see, Jews had a custom. And this custom, which was ordained by God, that not only every seventh day of the week would be a Sabbath. So on Saturday, you would Sabbath, you would rest, and you would worship God. But not only that, but that every seventh year would also be a Sabbath. Specifically, if you were a farmer, for six years you could till the land, but on the seventh year, you had to give the land a rest. In a world without artificial fertilizer, this was letting the soil regenerate itself. And so the Jews had to have trust that somehow they were going to be able to find food in a different way because God had ordained this. And not only was every seventh year a Sabbath, but after every seventh Sabbath, that is to say on the 50th year, all who would, would be in the Jewish population were to celebrate a year of Jubilee. This was the seventh yearly Sabbath, uh, and then it was the seventh of that Sabbath. And during this time of the Jubilee, all the slaves would be set free. Now, I'm going to remind you, the Bible never endorses slavery. We have had slavery in this world, and there is slavery in the world today because of your and my sinfulness, not God-ordained. It is our sinfulness that leads us to do those sorts of things. But in the case of the Jews, God is mandating for them, if you do have slaves, you have to set them free. And then, if somebody was in debt, and for example, they had lost their land because they were in debt, their debts had to be forgiven, and their land had to be given back to them. And then, not only that, if you were a prisoner in prison on that 50th year, on, on the year of Jubilee, you had to be set free. And Jesus even follows it up, and I didn't read this part of the passage, but he follows it up by saying that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And what really made them furious, what really made the religious leaders fume at Jesus' teaching here, is he brings up their scriptures, their story that they thought was all about them. But he tells them stories from their scriptures about the prophets. But he doesn't talk about the prophets going to Israel and taking care of the Jewish people. No, he tells a story about how a prophet goes and helps a widow in Zarephath. And how a prophet goes and helps a Syrian general. His message is kind of clear. He doesn't tell a story about God helping one of your widows. No, God's not helping one of your widows. He's helping one of their widows. Those people you hate. 
And God's not coming in, in this story and helping your people. Who is he helping? He's helping a Syrian general. He's helping one of the people that's trying to occupy you by curing him of his leprosy. God didn't help your people. God's helping your enemies, which is another way of saying you are not any better to God than them. They are just as important to God as you are. And then, in Jesus' hometown, they tried to push him off a cliff for saying these words. Remember, this is his hometown. I remember in my 20s, I was invited back to my home church in my hometown of Houston to preach. And luckily, nobody tried to push me off a cliff. They didn't try to kill me at all. It was great. Maybe somebody wanted to, but it didn't happen. I survived. But I'm from Texas. Imagine if I had gone up, and in my very first message ever, if I got up and I said, God sets people in prison free. Because here's the thing about Texas. We're not known for being soft on crime. We don't really like that kind of talk. What if I had gotten up and said, God wants to bless and care and heal even your enemies? That's not really a popular thing. See, your mission is not to come to church every week for an hour or two. That's not the mission of the church, not to just go to church. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, mission impossible, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to take Christ and his love to prisoners and your enemies and your neighbors. If it isn't good news for everybody, it's not really good news. And the people in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, they refused to believe that. Those people over there, Jesus, they don't act like us. They don't look like us. Jesus, they're enemies of our people. In a way, there's kind of like a low-level, maybe a higher-level racism that's going on that anybody who's different from me or thinks different from me, I'm not going to help them. We're not going to bring them good news, Jesus. But see, Jesus, when he reads their Bible stories, he reads them differently than they do. When they read it, they think it's a story about God helping them defeat their enemies. When Jesus reads their stories, he says, God is inviting his people. He's inviting you to work for the healing of the world, the whole world. You are to be a light to the Gentiles. So the Hebrew Bible, it says this over and over again. You're to be a light to the Gentiles. But they don't like Gentiles. They don't like their enemies. They didn't like Samaritans. They didn't like Romans. They don't like tax collectors. They really didn't even like women very much. Or kids. So the passage is very significant. Don't worry, I like kids. I'm talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees. The passage is so significant, but so is the editing that Jesus does. Jesus hardly ever quotes the Old Testament word for word, which he's allowed to do because he's Jesus, right? Of course. Um, he hardly ever quotes it word for word. 
Um, so he adds in, as he's reading this one passage, he adds in a whole other passage from a whole other chapter in Isaiah. It's chapter 58. And, and he says this, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke. He just inserts another chapter in the midst of the story he's reading. And they know that one. That's the one where the people are acting really religious, and they're fasting, and they're praying, and God wants nothing to do with it. He doesn't want to listen to their prayers. He doesn't want to see them fasting. And you know why? Because they're exploiting their workers. They're exploiting their workers. They're not paying their workers. They're not letting the the light shine for other nations. They're fasting and they're being all religious, but they won't share food with hungry foreigners, God tells them. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's brilliant. He's a brilliant teacher. He's calling them out. And then he even leaves a verse out on purpose. The verse they most wanted to hear. A verse, a section that describes the conquering of their enemies. I can just imagine the religious leaders saying, yeah, he's reading from there, but get to the conquering enemies part. We like that part. We like that part where we killed him. And Jesus won't even quote it. He read a messianic text. He claimed it for himself. And he left out the parts that they really liked. And the reason? Because the whole point of what God has always been doing is that you are to bring people different from you into relationship with you and into relationship with God. That's what the scriptures are teaching. See, in Luke's account of Jesus' life, first he's born, then he's baptized, he's tempted by the devil, and before he does any miracles, or before Jesus calls his disciples in Luke's account, before any of that happens, he goes to his hometown and he pisses everyone off. And this has always been the turning point. I I love God. But what if I'm not willing to love them? And that change of heart is required. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer. And one of the phrases that he put in there is very important. Forgive, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That same grace that pours into me, God wants me to pour it out for others. Jesus comes to get rid of sin, but part of sin is me not keeping my enemies. It's me not keeping my enemies. It can't work the other way. You don't get to keep your enemies and have Jesus get rid of sin. The Jewish people were called to be a light to the Gentiles, and when they did it right, people were brought into the faith, not just to become believers. I mean, think about Ruth. Think about Rahab. Think about Moses' brother-in-law. They saw the light that God was giving to the world, and they became heroes of the faith. They became leaders of the Jewish people. Outsiders became heroes of the faith. But that didn't happen unless the Jewish people, Moses specifically, in case of his brother-in-law, was willing to share God's love with him. The same thing continues even into the New Testament, even after Jesus has ascended to heaven. 
There was an argument between Peter and Paul. Peter believed the church was there only for Jewish people. The problem is they were being selfish. They were telling people they had to be circumcised, that they had to eat kosher food only, that they had to probably dress like them. It's how Jewish were you going to be in order for God to want to save you? And Paul comes along and he's like, stop it. Stop it. If they believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are saved. All they need is faith. They are saved, period. Look it up. Every time people wanted to kill Jesus, what was the real issue? Every time they wanted to kill Jesus, what was the real issue? Not just that he said he was Messiah, but that he says he's Messiah for the outsider. That's why they wanted to kill him. That he is willing to be a Messiah and willing to save people who are broken. That's what they hated him for. And that's why when we talk about our church, we're not a church. Messiah Lutheran Church is not a church for Lutherans. We are a church for St. Charles. We are a church of Lutheran believers, of Christians who want to lead who want to go into our community, want to bless and want to bring the saving grace of Jesus Christ to our community. That's what it means to be for. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You think about the church. We want church sometimes the way we want church. But what about those people in our community? Are we speaking their language? Are we showing Christ's light to them? To Jesus, this is non-negotiable. We can't be Jesus' church if we're not on Jesus' mission. He's going to pour grace into you, but he wants you to pour it out for others. And I think the saddest thing, maybe, in the entire New Testament might be Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. Because they refused to give up their prejudices. And that's why Jesus' miracles wouldn't work there. His mission and his power is for all people. And so if it's not for all people, then it's not his mission, and you don't get any of his power. And so they took him to throw him off a cliff. And one of the weirdest stories in the Bible, maybe you've heard this story before, but Jesus did a weird spooky ghost trick thing. They took him to the edge of the cliff to push him off, and he suddenly, like, disappears and just passes through him, and they couldn't grab him or anything. And he just walks away. And so Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, never got a miracle except for one. God walking away from them. God walking away from them. Well, now I want to show you a picture of Jesus' adopted hometown, Capernaum. This is a picture of Jesus' house, we believe, a small fishing village. It's on the Sea of Galilee. And why do I think this is Jesus' house? Well, this is the remains of a Byzantine church. And beneath them are the remains of a simple house that was built in the first century B.C. There are more than 100 graffiti scratches into the church walls. Most of the inscriptions say something like, Lord Jesus Christ, help thy servant. In a lot of places it says, Christ have mercy. And those words are written in three different languages. They're written in Greek in Syriac, and in Hebrew. 
And they're sometimes accompanied by etchings of small crosses. And in one place next to the words, there's a little boat. Thinking about all the times maybe that Jesus went out in a boat onto the Sea of Galilee. The excavators also say that the name of Peter is mentioned in several of the graffiti. In the years immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection, the function of the house changed dramatically. The house's main room was completely plastered over from floor to ceiling, which would have been really rare for a home to have that. It then survived as a small church for 300 years until the time when Christianity was legalized and this octagonal building was put over the top of it. You remember that story in Mark chapter 2 where they lower a paralyzed man through the roof of a house that Jesus is at? It actually says they lowered him through the roof of Jesus' house. Do you remember what he did before he healed the paralyzed man? He said, your sins are forgiven. Now, maybe he just meant in a general sense, all your sins are forgiven. And maybe he meant your sins are forgiven because your friends just cut a hole in my roof. (laughs) You think about that. Um, But that's really not what's so intriguing about this passage, that this, uh, this house became perhaps the first church building ever, that it became the first church building ever. This is about Jesus' hometown and his new hometown. In one, no miracles were able to be done except to escape their prejudices. Uh, in the new one, demons are coming out of people here in Capernaum. Demons are coming out of people, and people are being healed. When Jesus taught in Capernaum, people were listening. They believed in the miracles. And Luke uses the same word, rebuke. When Jesus casts out a demon, he says he rebukes demons. And when Jesus comes to Peter's mother-in-law and he heals her of her fever, it says he rebukes her fever. That's because whatever you're suffering from, it's an issue of living in a broken world, which means it's an issue of sin. And Jesus is rebuking and forgiving sin. So whether your ailment is spiritual or physical or emotional, it's, it's because we live in a broken world that we face these things, and Jesus is rebuking them all. And Mark likes to use the same word over and over again. The key is what happens next. It says when he rebuked Peter's mom's, uh, her fever, it says when he rebuked it, she immediately got up. And she started serving everyone there. This isn't like, take two of these and see me in the morning. No, this is a miracle that Jesus does. So Capernaum, they had a lot of faith in what Jesus is doing. They've seen a lot of lives change. They've seen a lot of miracles happen. But they don't necessarily, they understand what Jesus can do. They don't necessarily understand what Jesus is all about. When he was done doing miracles there, he told them that he needed to leave, and they tried to stop him. They actually tried to apprehend Jesus. They didn't want to lose their local miracle worker. And Jesus is like, I'm not the town doctor. I love you. I care about you. But I'm not really here to just do magic tricks all the time. This isn't my mission. I have to go to more towns, and I have to tell them the good news. But you know what? My mission is even greater than that. Really, my mission, it ends with a cross, It ends with an empty tomb. 
you guys want me to take care of the temporary things going on in your life, uh, I'm really here because of the eternal problem. So Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, it couldn't get miracles because they refused to, to give up hating people that Jesus loved. Capernaum wanted the miracles, and they wanted to keep them for themselves, but they forgot that Jesus is really here about big-picture stuff. Yeah, he, he cares when I have a fever, but he's really here to take care of eternal life for me. And not just mine. He's here to forgive the sins of the whole world. When you think about the song, Folsom Prison, I think it's about the same thing. Because this is a song about sorrow. This is a song about regret. It's, they are paying the price for the decisions that they have made. And rightfully so. They deserve to be where they are. But even for us, when we hear a song like that, you don't need to be in prison to know what that feels like. Like Many of us are shackled but we're shackled by our guilt. We're shackled by our shame. While it seems like the rest of the world is just traveling on by in their happiness, we can get shackled pretty easily. It's like that train next to Folsom Prison. We, we can get trapped. The song is so timeless that James Gunn in the new Suicide Squad movie, he uses it as the, as the, the soundtrack to his opening scene. And in a way, what Johnny was getting at and what that movie's trying to get at, and I think in a, in a sense what the gospel of Jesus Christ is trying to get at is we're asking this question, is there any hope of redemption? Is there any hope of freedom for someone who's done the things I've done? And the answer that Johnny explores in his music and that he explores in the, in the gospel he's kind of teaching through it, and the gospel that Jesus preached is this. You're never too far gone. You're never too lost for God to find you, to heal you, and to give you his grace. One of his friends observed, I saw three-time murderers in that prison brought to tears because Johnny Cash came to perform for them. They greatly appreciated him, and mostly because they forgot they were in prison for a little while. He made them forget they were in prison. Two weeks before performing in Folsom, uh, there was a guard that was held at knife point by several convicts. And so Folsom Prison went on major lockdown right before Cash was supposed to be there. And Johnny was informed by the warden that the show was going to be halted if a single inmate left their seat. If a single inmate even stood up, the concert was over, the album was gone, everything. So Johnny was, was already nervous. Uh, and so when he was at the hotel... Yeah, he swallowed a couple pills to take the edge off. And then when his bus started to pass through a checkpoint, he saw a sign that said, all who enter are subject to search. And so Johnny Cash cleaned out his pockets and swallowed all the rest of the pills on him. And so not only was that prison 
not a perfect venue to have a concert or to record an album, the performer himself wasn't in the perfect place to perform it as well. He was about to sing one of these songs that heaven is a place for forgiven sinners. But nobody needed to hear that message more than Johnny Cash himself. He often said that it was easier to go into prison and to perform than it was for him to even show up at church with regular people. Because sometimes when he would go into church with his family, he couldn't even stay more than 15 minutes because the girls would go crazy. Imagine how mad that would make his wife. But when he was in prison, oh, in prison, there was a captive audience. They were ready to sing along with him, to pray with him, to cry with him out to God. He was singing their song of confession that was on their hearts. This message, this gospel that, 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 that we, what we talk about, it needs to go there. It needs to go as far as we can think it can go. It needs to go to the ends of the earth. And I think what God's calling all of us to do is to be these kinds of Christians. What Jesus experienced in his hometown, in his adopted hometown, what Johnny Cash experienced in prison, it's only possible if Christians are willing to be out there in the world and sharing the light of God as well. Let me pray over you. Uh, Jesus,